Hello, welcome to the Theology Podcast. It's great to have you with us for another show. I'm C.R. Wiley. I'm a pastor. I serve a church in the Pacific Northwest. I've written some books. I've been a professor of philosophy. I've been a real estate investor, and my latest book is In the House of Tom Bombadil. Tom, why don't you tell folks a little bit about yourself? I'm Tom Price. I'm a systematic theologian and Christian ethicist, and I teach both at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary. And I'm Glenn Sunshine. I'm a retired history professor, specialist in the Reformation, senior fellow at the Colson Center for Christian Worldview, and a ministry associated Reflections Ministries. Okay, great. Well, we are uh, privileged to be joined by a special guest today, so, someone that uh, you know we've admired from a distance but never had a chance to get to know uh, in this way. But uh, Kevin DeYoung is with us. Kevin, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, and then we'll jump into the subject. Sure. Well, it's great to be with you guys. Good to be with brothers and uh, smart people from whom I'm going to learn a lot, so maybe I should be interviewing you. But uh, <laughs> um, I am... Senior pastor at Christ Covenant Church in Matthews, North Carolina. That's right outside of Charlotte. And I'm also an assistant professor of systematic theology at RTS Charlotte. Uh, before moving here in 2017, five and a half years ago, I was for 13 years the pastor at University Reformed Church, where Glenn was back in the 70s. I was the pastor there for 13 years in East Lansing, Michigan, was a pastor for a couple of years before that in Iowa. And uh, let's see, I, I also write books and podcast and write other things uh, and am married and have uh, somewhat relevant for our topic. I have nine children. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a great segue. Why don't we jump into the to this topic? Uh, you just recently published a, a great article in First Things, a journal we really like, uh, The Case for Kids. And it's, uh, you know, the, the way, you know, the, the title frames the matter, it in, implies that maybe some folks need a case made for kids. Right. <laughs> and, and I think that's right. I mean, I think we live in a world uh, that is oddly antinatal uh, and maybe is, the, is that way even in Christian circles. Um, but let's jump into it because you, you do get into some uh, important uh, kind of demographic material early on, but then some uh, things that you have to say about why we should have kids is, you know, are great. Uh, and we'd love to get into it. And I was just reflecting on this with the guys before you came uh, and joined us here, Kevin, when I was just getting started in the ministry uh, back in the, in the eighties, nobody was talking about this. Mm. In fact, the message even then was wait, wait, wait. Don't have your kids uh, until you've gotten your PhD or, you know, you're set in your career or whatever, you know, get all that stuff uh, established. Then you'll have kids. And of course, by that point, you're 35. <laughs> right. Right. So why don't you just kind of walk us through your article a little bit and uh, tell us kind of a from, you know, a 30,000 feet uh, perspective what you had to say. Right. Well, yeah. Thanks for the, the opportunity. Uh, the case for kids. So this is something I, I've thought a lot about, not only in, in my own personal life that the Lord's blessed us with a, a goodly number of children, but sort of what you were saying there, uh, I remember, you know, doing premarital counseling, and I don't do that much of it anymore, but earlier in ministry, and it seemed even good, reformed couples in a good church just the the assumption they came with was, well, they were probably already on 
birth control. And, and this article doesn't require that you have to be against birth control, but they were already on the pill, already operating with the assumption that just what you said, we're going to get all of our economic, our social, vocational ducks in a row, and then we'll have children. And I found, you know, even 20 years ago in ministry that among people who would say, yes, we love children, children are a blessing, there was this assumption that, yes, they're a blessing, but they really, you should, you need to plan them in just a certain way, don't have too many of them, make sure they come just at the time when your life is lined up and ready for them. And without realizing it, it's very much our world's consumerist attitude toward, of all things, our family, our children. We, we lay out our plan. Here are the things we do. We have the number of children that we want in the time frame that we want. And of course, it, it doesn't always, in fact, maybe doesn't often work that way. And sometimes there would be really sad occasions of people who figured, yeah, we'll just do this when we're both 32 and we've saved up some money and then we'll we'll get on a good run and we'll have three kids and we'll be done by the time we're, we're 38 and we'll be ready to... And it very rarely works that way. And I saw some of the sadness even as people said, well, now it's taken us four years to try to have kids and now we're looking at having one or two kids and boy, I wish that we had thought this through. And if that's what's happening... Uh, at least to some degree, among good Bible-believing Reformed Christians, how much more is happening or not happening there out in the world? So my article is arguing that there must be some kind of deep spiritual malaise, not just in the West or in America, but this is happening all over the world. And of course, you know, as pastors, we understand there's a lot of personal reasons for this. And I try to provide those guardrails because there's a lot of pain. There's many people, probably some listening who say, hey, look, I want to have kids and I, I haven't been able to get married or we weren't able to have kids or it took us a long time or you don't understand uh, my wife gets very sick or she's got health problems. So all of that we take into account. But if these were just one-off you know, extreme exceptions, we wouldn't see the numbers that we see. And so that's where I start with the article, TFR, total fertility rate. It's not an exact science, but the numbers are consistent enough to, to show a real strong decline that 50 years ago, Paul Ehrlich famously writes the book, The Population Bomb. That bomb never detonated. And now we're talking about a population <laughs> bust. And the on, almost the only countries in the world that are above the, the, the replacement rate, which is 2.1 uh, children, above the replacement rate are countries in Africa. And those countries have a fertility rate that are quickly plummeting as well. But in the Western world, and it's even worse in uh, the Far East, yet some places you have a, a TFR below one. You have for the first time... China, after its disastrous one-child policy, then they tried two and three, uh, that they've now in this past year have seen a population decline for the first mm -hmm. time. And in America, so closer to home, it looked for a while, you know, 15 years ago, that we were the outlier in the West and we still had a, a healthier, more robust fertility rate. And what looks to be like, what looked to be American exceptionalism turns out to probably just be American delay 
and we were maybe a, a half a generation or a generation behind where Europe had been. And so our fertility rate has plummeted precipitously in the last five, seven years and is well below the replacement rate. And with this comes a whole host of bad things. And those are economic, those are demographic, tax base, hopelessness, marriage, lots of those bad things. But of course, as Christians, we're also thinking, what, what's going on in our psyche, in our hearts, that uh, we're not just talking about some extreme cases where people wish they could have more, but they can't, but something writ large across almost the entire world is now seeing children, which were considered in the Bible as the supreme earthly blessing, and the paradigmatic curse in the Bible is barrenness and the lack of children. So I, you know, I say at the beginning, at the end, that cry from Rachel, you know, give me children to her husband, lest I die, has sort of been put on its head. Don't give me children lest I have to die to myself, or at least don't give me too many children right away. So I'm trying to make the case that there's some some deeper spiritual issues going on that has rendered almost the whole world to see children supremely as a burden rather than as a blessing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you know the the, the you know the, the book that you uh, uh, quote here uh, with regard to what to expect when no one is expecting. Right. Um, you know that that particular book. Uh, what's the author's By name? Jonathan, uh, Jonathan Last. La yeah, Last. Well, there's an interesting last name for yeah. a guy who writes a book like that. <laughs> but uh, I guess you know the thing about that is you know we see all of these uh, consequences that are that are not difficult to sort of uh, foresee, you know, be able to kind of sort of think, think the matter through, but it doesn't seem to make any difference with a lot of folks. Uh, and I think your pinpointing or zeroing in on spiritual malaise is really great. I think it's absolutely right. I, I'd actually queried Rusty at First uh -huh. Things about doing a piece on kind of reworking Social Security. And the more I thought about it, uh, in other words, make most Social Security more of a kind of a pro-natal program and sort of like, you know, give some kind of, I guess, a financial um, incentive to say, particularly mothers mm -hmm. who leave the workforce, you know, and so forth to have kids. Uh, the more I thought about it, I thought, no, <laughs> this is not a money problem. This is not really it's something that you could just incentivize in that way and get people to have kids. And you note this, you know, you talk about. European countries and even Japan, uh, they've, they've been working at this for a while, and there are just no policy approaches that seem to bring out and produce fruit. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, you know, when I did this, when I was talking to Rusty, too, he pointed to, well, let's see what happens in, in Hungary and what Viktor Orban is doing. And does anything there produce more children. Well, that remains to be seen. But what has been tried has not been successful. And, and I point to several iterations of this in Japan, for example, uh, multiple plans to try to get people to have more children. And the fertility rate just keeps going down, down, down. And that's not to say that, you know, better policy isn't, isn't a good thing that's pronatal. But, that, you know, the point that I make and others have made is you... Uh, you may be able to have effective government policy that encourages people and allows people to have the children they want to have, but we've not seen any government policy that convinces people to have the children they don't want to have. And mm -hmm. so if you're there, I want to have children, it seems difficult, it seems expensive, 
ah, oh, there's a tax rebate, there's an incentive, maybe that helps nudge a few people over the line or at least makes it more plausible and possible. But we're talking about something much, much deeper. And when it comes to something as consequential as having children and all that's involved in a lifetime of caring, raising, spending, yeah, most people are, I mean, very few people are going to make the kind of calculation, well, you know, a $4,000 tax rebate next year to have the child, yeah, that's worth, you know, the million dollars I'm going to put into it and the rest of my life. And then, of course, you add to it the, the, the concerns on the left about catastrophic climate change. And you, you have, you know, leading voices on the left really speaking out loud saying, should we even have any children? Is yeah. that an act of profound dereliction to bring any children into this world, not only for what they may suffer or experience, but what they're going to do to our planet? And yeah. that is m light years and miles away from the way the Bible views the human person and their place in this world. Yeah, it's interesting that the kind of humanistic tendencies that underwrote a lot of that have become so anti-human. Yeah, well put. Um, and, and we theologically know why. But I think uh, an important point, I think, complements what you're saying is we see this also on the level of just, um, you know, uh, human relationships is that not only is this relation kind of uh, bitter towards, uh, if not antagonistic towards having children, but also committed relationships, husband, wife for a lifetime. Uh, my wife works in uh, family therapy. And one of the things you hear over and over again, especially with singles that do want family and do want marriages to work, is the self-centeredness of partners. Um, it's all about their voice and their best life. And so that makes it very difficult to sustain relationships, but also finding partners that are committed to, even in the church, committed to the family and, and life together in a very, uh, you know, you know, self-giving and, and, you know, all the things required for family to work and be sustained. And so I know a lot of young, younger people coming along and they just said, I cannot find anybody that that is that has that kind of durability. And then they're like, I don't even know if I do. And so there, there seems to be, you know, that compounded aspect. And then also you, you mentioned um, I don't want to kind of run off with this, but I mean, I just heard Chuck Schumer yesterday talking about the need to import people because we're not having children. And yet we're removing the organ. This is very much like Lewis is saying in different yeah. things. You, and he's almost castigating us. You're not having children, so we have to do this. And yet the, the laws with, you know, we're just seeing with the kind of gay marriage uh, thing going before the Senate. And we're also seeing it with, um, you know, the ab radical abortion disposition of the young in our culture. Um, it, we're, we're shooting ourselves in many places and, and then wondering why we can't stop the bleeding. Yes, in, in many places, is, is in some inopportune places. I mean, the the irony, you don't know if to laugh or to cry, that on the one hand, yes, telling people, we need to have more children. At the same time, strike up the band, roll out the parade, we're going to protect yeah. gay marriage, and uh, what, how many 10 Republicans got on board yeah. with that as well? And abortion yeah. is sacred sacraments. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. We have to do that. 
and no one can see any connections between all of these things? Yeah, well, I think obviously they do, and this is where Romans 1 is so apropos. <laughs> they don't want to, uh, to, to deal with those. You know, uh, I did a, I did a uh, review of Mary Aberstadt's book, um, you know, um, How the West Really Lost God for Touchstone a few years back. And uh, you, t- you touch on that, too, and you, and you connect uh, in your, your piece um, the kind of the kind of the long term prospects of the Christian faith with family formation. Can you get into that a little bit? Because I think that's another thing that sometimes is lost on people. Uh, Chris, be, be, yeah. before we move there, I'd, I'd just like to throw in a little bit of historical stuff here. Sure. Historically, marriage occurs when people, well, to put it simply, get established, whatever that means, when they can start their own farms, when they can start their own businesses or whatever. This is what, what you see happening. And actually, you can trace the rise and fall of fertility through the Middle Ages with climate shift. When the weather gets warmer and drier and farms can get started easier and things like that, people get married younger. And as, as uh, Kevin pointed out in the article, age of first marriage for women is critical for fertility rate. The more childbearing years you have in marriage, the more children you have. Now, we've, we've changed this in a number of substantial ways. First of all, our idea of what it means to be established isn't, okay, I can afford a family. It's, I've done all the things that I want to do. You know, I've, I've done my traveling. I've done this. I've done that. I've done the other thing. Um, we've also tied it very much to personal satisfaction, the, the sort of expressive individualist idea of marriage. Uh, it's all about me and what I want and what I get out of it. And the result of all of this is a complete breakdown in marriage culture. Um, the irony being the only people who seem excited about getting married are gays. <laughs> you know, right. um, right. we're all it, supposed to come out to their wedding ceremonies. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, on one level, I can sort of sympathize with the idea that, well, we really need to finish our education before we get married. Um, because actually, historically, among college people going to college, that was the typical pattern. But as that starts getting extended into the late 20s, into the 30s and things like that, and then you add these other dimensions into it, it creates, like I said, an anti-marriage culture among heterosexuals, which is kind of bizarre in a lot of ways. Yeah, that's absolutely, I mean, that's a really important point. And the the, the baby boom uh, post-World War II was in large effect uh, a marriage boom. And people were having more children, but it was also people were we're getting married. And the two, obviously, or should be obvious, go hand in hand. And just what you said, Glenn, is right. The more you delay marriage, just stands to reason, the fewer kids you can have. And it's not even that the impulse to want to, you know, to think wisely and responsibly, that's not a bad impulse. But to your point, it's been extended through so many iterations. It's not Okay, I should I should finish high school and make sure that I can ply a trade and do something and, and be responsible with my hands and, and make some money. It's a certain de facto sort of lifestyle that must be reached. And then it's college, and then it's maybe a grad program or an internship program, or it's travel, it's various experiences I must have so that children for so many become an auxiliary lifestyle component. 
It says, mm. yeah, I want to have children. I mean, that that seems like something for most people. That's part of the good life to have one or two children, but in its time, in its place. And 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 just getting to the question about Eberstad's book, which is really helpful and commend, you know, reading your review when you did that at Touchstone, because she makes the point, we, we tend to think of this just flowing in one direction, that as faith falters, then family formation falters. And if we had people who were better Christians, more serious about their faith, then they'd be responsible and they would get married and they'd have kids and we'd have better homes. And And there is a true direction, but it also moves in the opposite direction. And that's her point, namely that as family falters, faith becomes less plausible to many people. So that the, the plausibility structures for Christianity are not only intellectual, philosophical, they're familial, meaning that when you have, it works in many ways, it, you know, it, it can simply be that family you know, and children makes you see your need. And so there's a God or the story I, I give from the anecdote from Whitaker Chambers, who was moved to consider faith by seeing his daughter's ear and seeing there must mm-hmm. be a creator here. All of those can drive people to faith. But Everett also makes the point that there are there are new hurdles to Orthodox Christian faith. And a lot of those in our day have to do with issues around marriage, family, sexuality. People don't like to be judgmental of themselves or of other people they know. And so Christianity has always been an offense to sinners, and we're all sinners. We have to die to ourselves. That's always been true. But now if you say, okay, to be to be a Christian, to be in this church, we hold certain things, that marriage is between a man and a woman, and that sex outside of marriage and before marriage is wrong. Well, now you're, you're hitting most people with practices that they already do or grew up in uh, or have lots of people who already do them. And so there's new obstacles to faith formation because family formation has not taken place. And we all know that the, the response that many churches are taking is to say, well, those obstacles are just too high. And so we ought to change what we mean, or let's find a way to downgrade this or to put it in the corner or to have a revisionist argument where the answer, if there is an answer, you know, besides God's sovereign and his word changes hearts, is to say that as Christians, we need to be, we need to be thinking about both of these things and not in isolation from each other. That if, of course, the mission of the church is not, first of all, to make good marriages and have people you know, reproduce. And yet, that's quite essential to the propagation, not only of the human species, but of the Christian faith. Because wherever family formation falters, uh, Christian formation falters as well. And if we're we're concerned about one, we have to be concerned about the other. Yeah, and you get into uh, the the place of... um uh, bringing children into the world within the context of marriage, you, you talk a little bit about, you know, what are, you know, what were the things that were emphasized historically with regard to, you know, the work of the church, as uh, you know, you know that the 
spiritual formation and discipleship of married couples occurred. Can you get into that a little bit? Because uh, it, it seems as though we've lost a, a, a one of the pieces. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and I mean, this this goes back a, a, a long time to Augustine and to Aquinas. And, and I bring it out just looking at Carl Zimmerman's book from the 1940s, which is very prescient in a number of ways as he talks about family in civilization. And he sees, he shows that there's always been these, or typically in the West, there's been these three features when you think about what are the, the goods of marriage or what is marriage is supposed to be like. And there's the, the permanence of marriage, whether you call that an official sacrament as the Catholic church does, or just sacramentum in a more general sort of sense, uh, the permanence of it, the, the male, female, complementary union, and then from which children are supposed to be born. And we've tended to think that we can remove the piece of the, 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 the childbearing and still maintain the whole warp and woof of what the good of marriage is supposed to be about. And mm. you, you, you don't have to, uh, you know, Protestants and Catholics do have important differences when it comes to understanding marriage. And one of those is whether it's a sacrament. And yet, in the the scope of the great tradition, as it were, of the church, there is some unanimity here in seeing that marriage is supposed to have both this unitive and procreative purpose mm -hmm. to it. And, uh, you know, that, that, you know, you can disagree or agree on whether that means every single act of sexual union must allow for that. But certainly as an institution and as an act itself, that the coming together of husband and wife is supposed to have a procreative purpose. I was just teaching this in my systematic theology classes. We were talking about marriage because I think many of us, especially Protestants, don't tend to see this. The reason uh, in Genesis 2 that the wife was a, a fitting, suitable helpmate for the man, we often hear this explained in, in social terms, and he was lonely and he needed a companion. That's right. <laughs> well, well, God could have created, you know, uh, a gaggle of golden retrievers and he would have, you know, been alone or, or he could have just created other men in his literal man cave and he could have had fun there. But she was necessary because only the woman together with the man could fulfill that creation mandate to be fruitful and to multiply. So that's what makes her fit for him. And, and it's only when we understand that complementarity and that procreative possibility that even the logic of monogamy, lifelong commitment makes sense. I mean, Glenn, you're talking about, you know, gay marriage, and I'll put marriage in quotation marks because right. I don't believe it is marriage, even if our state says that it is. Uh, when, of course, that's kind of pitched to us and sold to us, it's, well, of course, this is going to be just like traditional marriage, and it's going to be monogamous, and it's going to be lifelong. Now, you know, people speaking honestly in, in, in a whisper will tell you, well, that's very, very rarely the case with gay partnerships. But setting that aside, there simply is no logical cohesion to monogamy apart from the fact that man and woman coming together is not just a union, but, but a kind of reunion 
because she was taken from the man. And when they come together, there is a specific one flesh unitive purpose that's meant to arise from that marriage relationship, namely children. That's why it's one man and one woman. That's why it's for a lifetime. That's why they're exclusive to one another. I mean, we don't make, you know, we don't have to be exclusive to our friends. You know, if you had a ceremony where you and your your BFF swore that you would be best friends for life and no one would ever be your friend, you would think, mm, <laughs> you know, you, that's a little weird. <laughs> you would call it codependency or something. <laughs> because we yeah. know that's not what friendship is. Friendship can multiply. So what is the moral logic that says marriage is not that sort of, that sort of so, union? So, yeah. Kevin, two things here. Uh, I... <laughs> How's this for, for a little bit of a perversity? I was, used to teach in the Women's Studies program at Central Connecticut State. <laughs> Surprising revelation. You didn't, you didn't have the beard then, did you? Oh, I did. I did. I call, did. It, call, call it a bit of subversion. Um, but I, I, I once asked the class, I said, you know, every human society has an institution of marriage throughout history. And... In all cases, it's given a privileged status. It's given a privileged place different from all other relationships. Why do you think that is? No one in the class mm -hmm. could come up with the idea of bearing children. Not a right. single one. This is a women's study program, too. <laughs> yep. now, th now, the other part of it is one of the points that I made there. This is, this is right when same-sex so-called marriage uh, was beginning to... Well, about the time Massachusetts legalized it and that sort of thing. And, uh, you know, what, what I told them, I, I, I took it a step further. I said that there are a bunch of things that actually go together historically. Sex and childbearing. Therefore, sex and marriage. Childbearing, therefore, marriage permanent. Mm -hmm. Okay. So, I, I, you know, by, by combining those, I said, all right, so what has our society done? We have separated marriage from permanence with the divorce revolution. Um, in another one of my classes, I commented at the time that I'd been married for 25 years, and you could hear the jaws hitting the desktops. One of the students looked at me and said, I've never met anybody that's mm. been married for 25 years. Okay, so we got rid of permanence. We've also broken the connection between sex and between childbearing and marriage. We've broken the connection between sex and marriage, and we've broken the connection between sex and childbearing on both ends, through both in vitro fertilization on the one hand and contraception on the other. We have destroyed everything that, that there was in marriage except for one thing, companionship, mm -hmm. friendship, whatever. Mm -hmm. Under those circumstances, same-sex marriage actually makes a certain amount of sense. Yeah. And, and I'm, you know, I'm not advocating this, but th this is the reasoning that's going on. And it's because of all of these other cultural changes that we put in and that the church has largely accepted, or at least gives sort of a, a wink of the eye to. And no wonder we're in the problem we're in, because we've never understood that these things are intrinsically related to each other. Mm -hmm. I guess that brings up the question, you know, why is it hard for the larger culture to see a connection between um, kind of physical realities and uh, institutional sort of norms and even 
human well-being, <laughs> all these things. You know, that's a whole maybe other show, but I, that's one of the things that mm-hmm. is a, a part of this. Uh, I can see, Tom, you have something you wanted to say. Well, I, I also think really for the first time in the history, um, we actually are seeing the outplaying of something that we've talked about over and over again is a radical disconnection between the creaturely and the eternal. And so if you want to talk, I mean, it's one thing, maybe a sacramental strong set. We may differ on sacramental readings, um, you know, from really hyper strong readings of the sacraments um, and marriage is that. But you cannot rid yourself of that kind of trans transcendence as the roots, you know, of of giving intelligibility to the created order. I mean, what is Genesis but God giving being to and this being is fitting and analogous to who God is, and it isn't to be played with because it is ordered in such a way that it's exhibiting in a creaturely way. It's a sign of the transcendence of God. And when we, as Glenn was mentioning, when we've detached these things from that created and moral order, their intelligibility goes. And we don't have the, the, the theological frame to, to make that intelligible. So they start to read it how? Well, the self becomes sort of the defining point, and then the self becomes fragmented and, and, and unintelligible, and then it becomes feeling or whim or who's in power or, you know, who wants to be together. Um, choice without any formation becomes the, the, the ground. And so I, I, think, I think that key move this increasing move away from, and, and even pagan cultures, for all their faults and idolatry, they still had more of a connection to the sacredness of things and, and the created order in many cases, even though they kind mm. of distorted it and perverted it. So I think we're on a time where that's been ripped, and, and there, there is kind of a, a, a boat you know, without a compass, yeah, and to the the point that that you were making about, you know, why is it so difficult to make these arguments for people to see the the connection between the institution of marriage and what's happening? Uh, I'm sure you guys are familiar with Jonathan Haidt's work, and uh, he talks about sort of moral ecology, and he's 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 not a Christian, and he's on the left, but he's he's for free speech, and and he does interesting work on thinking. Yeah. Of in his book, The Righteous Mind, how people come to moral conclusions. And he has, I think, six different categories of how people make moral decisions. And the, the one, and I can't recite all six of them offhand, but the one is the harm principle. People make moral valuations based on whether someone is harmed. And that is the, the one moral framework that almost everyone in our culture agrees on. Now, he says there's five other ones that have to do with, you know, cultural impurity, with taboo, with divine transcendence, all sorts of things. And I think this is really instructive because why are we seeing that, you know, the the Senate can pass, you know, gay marriage so-called protection legislation with barely a whimper or an outcry, and it's and it's hardly news, and it's probably not going to have any electoral consequences for people who voted one way or another. And yet, if if there was something uh, that was transgender rights bill, I think you would see a great outcry from a lot of people. Why are these two issues moving in some different directions? I mean, we're concerned about the the transgender revolution, and yet I, we're seeing a significant amount of pushback 
and not just from from Christians, from all sorts of people lining the the hallways at school board meetings. And it's because the transgender movement runs afoul of this harm principle. People can see, wait, you're harming my daughter by having men, biological men, in her locker room. You're harming women's sports by having biological men dominate sports where my daughters and, and women are participating. Or now you're seeing just the horrible stories of people detransitioning or telling their mm. stories of body parts chopped off, puberty blockers, mm. horrible stories. In other words, you can see vividly this ideology is harming people. It's right there. Mm. People tell their stories. Look at what happened to my body, um, this swim meet right now. And it's it's much harder uh, on the issue of homosexuality. Uh, there is harm. There's harm to the institution of marriage, but it's it's a longer argument to make, and it's not one that's so immediately obvious. So I think uh, we fall on the other side that most people would say, well, look at who... Who is hurt with gay marriage? Most pe- people would say, man, no one. Okay, if you're a Christian and you don't believe in it, fine, but why should you legislate your morality, et cetera? In fact, if you don't allow gay people to get married, we can see the harm principle at work because people are going to yeah. come out and they're going to be interviewed and say, this is the saddest day of my life. Why won't you let me just be with the person that I love? And so on that issue, the biblical Western <laughs> truth is seen as the oppressor and inflicting harm on others where there's i have i have some hope that the transgender thing may be reaching a tipping point where saner voices are going to be heard and you even see this among some you know conservative media outlets you you will see conservative media outlets i'm talking about non-christian ones in particular that they, they will be loud and out there uh, when it comes to transgender stuff, but relatively quiet when it comes yeah. to homosexuality, because you can't see the harm principle in the same way. And I think that's why it it makes these arguments nonsensical to people, because we've lost almost any other categories of moral yeah. formation. Yeah, yeah I, I would point out that, uh, again, one of these things, I've never seen anybody else talk about this. Traditional marriage, true marriage, performs a social good right you, you need to bring the next generation into the world and you need to acculturate them it, it is an essential function for society same-sex marriage so-called does not do that it performs no social good it performs a private good so the question is do you really want the government regulating private relationships that do not perform any public good yeah, this is a, a kind of a worthwhile segue into a statement you make, uh, Kevin, about pre-political institutions. You know, I think this is an, as a concept that's lost on a lot of people today, partly because I guess the left has politicized everything. And it's part of their larger agenda to more or less say that because everything is socially constructed, everything is political. Um, as opposed to the more traditional understanding of, no, there are certain givens. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, there are certain things that are just, you know, kind of given to us that, that we just, uh, you know, sort of uh, enact because of our natures. Um, but this idea that um, that at the same time, even though it's a pre-political institution, the state 
benefits uh, from its uh, health <laughs> and its flourishing. And kind of related to this, kind of getting to the private goods, or maybe, maybe this isn't the right way to put it, but I think that when people um, sort of uh, prescind or, or sort of uh, remove from their minds, uh, you know, the, the, the entrance of children into their homes, um, they harm themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, for example, I've got three grown kids. Uh, two of them are married with children. Um, my third is going to get married here in, in a month. And uh, both my sons have children, have daughters uh, with their wives. And it's been fascinating for me to, to sort of observe uh, from the outside how it's changed the kind of the chemistry of their homes. They're different people <laughs> now than they were a year ago. Um, and it's affected... Um, the, the, the households in healthy ways. They, they had great marriages and, you know, mm-hmm. that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's, there's a whole new reality now that's been introduced that makes, well, and then this brings up, you know, is it really possible to be someone worthy of regard if you never sacrifice for someone else, if you never put somebody ahead of your, your, your yourself, and children, of course, force you to do that. So anyway, I've, I've thrown a bunch of stuff out. <laughs> yeah, I'd just like to hear what you have to say yeah, about it. Yeah, no, that's really good. Uh, several really important things there. Let me piggyback on, on the last one. So uh, people talk about toxic masculinity. In fact, if you say masculinity, they expect that the word before it is is toxic. <laughs> well, let's suppose that that is a problem. And indeed, we know all sorts of ways that men are sinners in colossal ways. Supposing that is a major cultural problem, the remedy for that, if you want to have men changed to be responsible, to be oriented to the other instead of themselves, marriage and childbearing is that institution with those aims. Now, of course, you can say, well, chicken or egg, you, you want men to have some level of responsibility. But it, it's simply the case, to, to your point, the the male drive, which can be sinful and can be God-given, uh, men are stronger, they have more testosterone, they tend to be more competitive, more ambitious. Uh, what seems natural to men is not necessarily sex with one woman for a lifetime. What seems natural to men and is natural in most other parts of the animal world is sex with whomever. And in fact, you can look at the Roman world and the Roman world understood uh, wrongly, we would say, as Christians, but they understood the Roman man, yes, he should not have a, an affair with another married, free Roman woman, but we understand he's going to have prostitutes, we understand he's have slaves, we understand he might have pederasty with young boys, because the male sexual urge is just insatiable, it can't possibly be fulfilled with just one person. And Christianity comes along and says, no, no, no. This, this value of chastity is for men and women. And when the man is oriented in marriage to one person, it's not just that marriage depends upon the strength of men, it's that the institution of marriage and family is meant in a very real way to civilize men and to harness that energy, that God-given ambition, drive, protection, competition, and, and direct it to a private good 
and a public good, which just gets to, to my, my second point, and then I, I'll let you guys jump back in. You know, you talk about, uh, and Glenn, you said this, marriage is a public good. Why, why does the state have an interest in regulating? Why, why does the state have you get a marriage license and make you have to fill out this out and you've got to get somebody to sign it? Why does the state at least have some hurdles then to getting a divorce I mean, the state doesn't do this right now. Anyone, you could go out, you could go into a church, into a courtroom. You can have any sort of ceremony you want. You can call it whatever you want. You can commit yourself in lifelong friendship to 10 people or 20 people. You can have a ceremony with your dog. You can do all sorts of things and call it what you want. Why does the state have an interest? It's because the state's recognized it has a vested interest in this public good the propagation of children, the enculturation of children, and until recently, providing the best uh, environment. And reams of social science tell us this. You don't have to be a Christian to come to this conclusion that raised wherever possible by two parents, your biological parents, is that institution which most reliably produces human flourishing in the next generation. So when you know the Obergefell decision came down and some Christians were saying you know, get government out of the bedroom and kind of making libertarian arguments to say, mm-hmm. well, we have our Christian view of marriage, but why should we insist on our Christian view of marriage? Let let marriage be open to everyone. And my reply was always, no, you are ceding to the government a massive amount of newfound control and authority right. because, to use the language, marriage was always seen as a pre-political institution. The state did not define what marriage was. It recognized it and ordered it Mm -hmm. toward the common good. So in redefining marriage, we have given to the state or the courts have taken it from us, this authority that now the government can say, not just recognize and order what marriage always has been, but provide a new definition of what marriage is that has no orientation ultimately towards the family or to child rearing. Yeah. Well, one of the things that really was marvelous to see in your, your uh, essay was uh, your, uh, I guess, uh, upbraiding of Christian colleges, <laughs> you know, criticizing the fact that it seems like, and I, I know exactly what you're getting at, uh, every bit of literature you get from them uh, you know, in terms of like showing the, the benefits of the education that the institution provides have to do with like corporate uh, success right. uh, for both men and women. And when was the last time you saw in like, well, I'll, I'll name some names, you know, Wheaton College's promotional material. Here's a woman with five children who stays at home. And uh, yeah, she's got an online Etsy business, but <laughs> she, she, you know, her, the, her life is wrapped up in her children. And this is success. You know, right. I, I've, I've not seen that. Yeah. I, I forget which school it was, or I would give them credit, but they, one of the Christian schools sent me and said, Hey, we did this. Here's uh, you know, an alumni magazine we put out last year and we featured the stay at home mom. So kudos to them. I'd mention them if I can remember it, but yeah, it, I mean, w- we don't expect differently from non-Christians, but it would be wonderful to see from our Christian institutions uh, ostensibly conservative evangelical Christian institutions, because that material, whether it's in advertising to come to the school or alumni magazines or celebrating, uh, you, you imitate what you celebrate. 
and they're showing what what this means. What what is the good life? What is the telos of this degree, this experience? Well, it's not any one. Th- we get it. There's a lot of things you could do, but the fact that you almost never, or in most cases, never see highlighted this telos of domestic life, of familial life, but it's it's someone who is going to be a high flyer in corporate America, or perhaps they have some some wonderful NGO humanitarian experience. It's not to discount what goods those may be, but we we almost never think to highlight domestic goods as really something worth celebrating or something worth giving one's life for. And in that way, we're much more acculturated by the world than we think. Yeah, yeah. And as I think about this, you know, what is it that compels us to be that way? I I mean, um, I guess, uh, you know, the same is true for churches. Uh, It's not as though, uh, you know, we can just pick on, say, publishers or or Christian colleges. But I think sometimes we see the same dynamic in uh, our church life, and that is uh, that we don't want. So, for example, uh, I've actually heard this case made. So you have nine children, and I think that's great. My wife and I, we look back on our, 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 you know, you know, sort of lives and say, we wish we had more kids. And there was nobody at the time that we were getting kind of going who was talking about this kind of stuff. But now uh, we do see some folks. I mean, I, I, the church I uh, serve right now is very pro-natal. I've got a, I've got elders. One one elder has thirteen kids, another has twelve, another has nine. You know, <laughs> you know. So, uh, and it's great. I mean, when when you're in that kind of environment, um, it's really uh, energizing. You know, you have all this young these little people running around yeah. <laughs> and actually older people really love it too. I mean, they, they want to be a part of it. It's not as though they, they see this as kind of a zero sum game. It's like, Oh, okay. This is a church with, with people who have a lot of kids. Uh, therefore they don't care about me. No, they actually find it like very, uh, I guess, uh, uh, gratifying mm-hmm. to be part of a church with a lot of kids. Um, what 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 can happen? What can be done to help us kind of shift our, you know, we have a few outliers, you know, you're an outlier. You know, a lot of people in my church are outliers. How can we see this go from being sort of like, well, they're into that sort of thing <laughs> to <laughs> you, this is something that's more kind of the norm? Yeah. I mean, th- there, there's a couple of difficulties. One, a difficulty that, that I'm sympathetic to is you know, especially I think this is true among women. There, there's few things that can be as painful or as uh, envy or grief producing as kind of comparing family situations or comparing children. So I think there's a there's an understandable dimension that I think we would all feel we'd want to have in church that, well, man, we don't last thing we, well, not the last thing. One thing we don't want is a sort of inherent competition and, oh, you had this many children. You must be a better Christian. You must be really more serious. You've really given your life to the, okay, we don't, we don't want that. And it can become that. So that, that's, I'm understanding of that more widespread and perhaps more even forceful is just all that, all that our world does and puts upon us to make having many children difficult. 
And this is where the body life in the church can make what seems unusual seem at least normal, even if not everyone has the ability to do that, or you have different numbers of of children, we we get that. But I I was pretty proud that I found a way to quote Jim Gaffigan in my uh, first mm-hmm. things piece, uh, where he said, "Large families are like waterbed stores; they used to be everywhere, and now they're just weird." <laughs> uh, so they are; they just seem right. weird. Well, if they can seem. Uh, not weird. If they should be unweird in any place, it should be in our churches where there is that celebration of life. And of course, there's, you know, I don't mind at all the, the, you know, the jokes and the poking in the, Hey, what kind of van do you drive? And do you know how this happens? Yes, I do know how it happens. <laughs> yes, we have a 15 passenger van and we're not even homeschoolers and we still have a 15 passenger a van. Get a yeah. <laughs> uh, like the old day. <laughs> I know. I, I often, um, quote one of my professors at Gordon Conwell, uh, David Wells, who said that worldliness is whatever uh-huh. makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Mm-hmm. And, uh, certainly, having this kind of family life is strange in most places in the world and even in many of our churches and the 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 forces not just even nefarious forces but just the size of the car seats and the size of the vans and you know h- how you get around and how you do things and you know we we were I was booking some tickets to fly back to Michigan for Christmas and I go on the American Airlines site and drop down menu for how many tickets. It only goes up to nine. <laughs> <laughs> so they're not expecting anyone to possibly need more than that. So uh, actually, we had to call group sales and they, they got us a, you know, it was a little bit of a discount that our family qualified as group sales. So That's I, great. I am thankful great. for that. But I, I love what you said there. And and you're absolutely right. I was just, you know, in our elders meeting earlier this week, some of our elders who are, you know, a generation older than me were saying how pleased they were, you know, church is getting a little younger. And they said, we just love, you know, it's a good sound, even when, you know, the service is kind of peppered and interrupted with little screeches and screams and kids <laughs> coming and going. That's a sound of life. And we yeah. need to celebrate that. We would much rather have that than just the stifling silence. No, you yeah. want all the the life. And, you know, you think of that proverb uh, where you know, without the oxen, the manger is clean, but where the oxen is, you know, there is much work. And that's like children. Yeah. Believe me, my house is not clean. Uh, there are <laughs> many, many little oxen. And, and when you when you put that into the life of a church or a community. It is. It's loud and it's boisterous and it's not simple. But you, you take that, you take the mess with the oxen for what the oxen mean for the farmer. And it's the same thing with our children. Yeah, I served a church on Cape Cod for uh, about almost a decade. And of course, Cape is a place where you go to die. I did like 50, I did 50 wow. funerals uh, wow. in the course of my time there. And uh, our church was unusual in the sense that we had a number of young families and with kids. Uh, but many of the churches uh, in the area were completely gray. I mean, you go to, into the church and these are people, of course, who re- relocated from Iowa or wherever, because, you know, it's like Florida. It's where you go to die, like I said. Uh, but it was a really depressing thing. And, and they w- would light up. These old folks would light up 
when little people were around them. And um, I think sometimes our age segmentation approach to sort of like marketing and, and program development and that kind of stuff, uh, again, is kind of working against this, uh, this, this thing. Um, there's a time and a place for getting the kids together to teach them a lesson or, you know, doing something with the youth and stuff like that. But um, sometimes we go just way overboard with that and, and, and think, well, we want to do something for the old folks and we got to keep the kids out of the room, <laughs> right. that kind of thing. And it's just, it's just the reverse. Yeah. 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 The, the church I'm in, which is another one you would be familiar with Kevin Michiana covenant. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Um, for a long time, the, their, uh, entire approach to church growth was more babies. Right. <laughs> I mean, well, it works. <laughs> yeah. And, and the, the problem of course is that it's also a lot of grad students. And so they move out, but, um, uh, you know, in a congregation where we get less than a hundred on a Sunday morning, we currently have six pregnancies. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of expectant mothers, and but you know, the thing about it is, there was a period of time where um, it was almost kind of like uh, we value conversion growth over biological growth. And I think both are great, and it's it's wrong to set them against each other in that way. But remember, the shakers were all conversion growth. <laughs> and uh, eventually their message kind they of lost, lost its appeal. Yeah. <laughs> right. They shook out. <laughs> and they are no more. Uh, they yeah. left behind some great furniture. and uh, <laughs> You can get that down in Glenn's neck of the woods. Some, some good furniture there. But you're right. We, we don't have to pit the they're, – they're not against each other. No. And, w- yes, go out. We need to evangelize. We need to bring in people who are far from Christ. The Great Commission, however, to to make disciples, we're going to be making those disciples, teaching them to obey everything Jesus had commanded within the context of our church. And that's going to include people coming in, strangers and aliens from the covenants, and also those who are, are near and already a part of the covenant. And both ought to be celebrated and both are necessary in the church. And yes, there, I'm sure there are some church contexts where evangelism is an afterthought or something, but, but it is true. There are many places where it's kind of, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, well having kids, of course, but no, it's not of course, because lots of people aren't doing that. And we need to see the inherent good, not just privately, but for churches and for our communities. And really that's kind of, you know, I try to end the the piece on that note of returning to the the, the blessing. And, and it, it's, it's faith that children are a blessing. And believe me, it is an article of faith on many days. I mean, I love all my kids <laughs> deeply. And, uh, you know, we got up to you know, we wanted, we knew we wanted to have a pretty big family, but we got to five and we said, well, that, you know, maybe one more. And then we just kept <laughs> doing that until we're, yeah. we're nine. And if God gives you one more than you can handle, I think he gave us like six more than we can <laughs> handle. So it, it is, it is really nuts and it's, it's tiring and exhausting. It really is. So it, it's an article of faith to believe that, no, this is God's blessing. And not only that, but I say at the end, it's, it's an act of, transcendence, not that it makes us divine, of course, but transcendence in that there's to, to have a child is to put yourself where you can't go. It's to put yourself into the future. It, yeah. It's it's an act fundamentally of hope. I mean, why do people who are, you know, 
climate catastrophizing. They don't want children because they don't have hope. That's they don't right, have yeah. they don't have hope for what this world can be, and they they have a profoundly uh, misanthropic view of the human person that people on the planet are only polluters, corruptors, mm-hmm. a sort of cancer on a healthy organism, rather than seeing if these problems are as bad as people suggest, you know what's going to be the solution to them? It's going to come from the human spirit. It's going to come from the human brain. It's going to come from the very sorts of people that so many are afraid to bring into this world. It's, it's, an, it's an act of faith and hope and transcendence. And I hope that Christians of all people will will see that. And I don't think by itself it's a it's a cultural renewal strategy, but it's certainly part of it. I think that's a great way. To, that's a great place to end the show. We're at the time that we normally wrap things up. Um, so, and I think that your, your stress on uh, hope and uh, what I think intentional childlessness seems to imply to me is despair. There's mm-hmm. a sense in which you know that's pervasive in our society. Um, but anyway, uh, as we as we do wrap up, uh, you've got a number of books, Kevin. You've got things you do. Is there a place where we can send people to, to learn more about, you know, what you've written and so forth? Sure. I mean, the simplest place is you can go to kevindeyoung.org and uh, there you get one place. You can find books, you can find podcasts, uh, latest articles that are coming out. So just launch that in the last year is try to be a central hub to just put sermons, everything in that one place, kevindeyoung.org. Sounds great. Well, anyway, uh, thanks again, Kevin, for coming on the show. Great to be with you. Appreciate getting to hang with you guys, and hopefully you can do it in person sometime. Oh, that'd be great. Absolutely. And uh, for those of you who've made it all the way to the end of the show, (laughs) congratulations. (laughs) And uh, we appreciate your interest in the podcast. And uh, if you are interested in supporting the show, we do have a Patreon account that does help us to, to cover the bills. It does cost us something to produce each show. None of us take any money from the show. Uh, obviously, we enjoy being a part of it, and uh, and we're, we've done it for a while now. But uh, it's the folks who give to us on a regular basis that help us pay the bills. So uh, there's a link in the show notes. If you want to become one of those folks, one of those patrons, we, we would appreciate that. Anyway, thanks again. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.